0: The very first law of the United States of America, statute one, chapter one, was an act about the administering of oaths for civil and military officials. So you can see the importance of it to our founding fathers. The very birth of our country and our government is founded upon this oath of loyalty and allegiance, not to any particular person, but to the United States of America, to our governing principles and the ideals that we stand for.
1: It's a hot, muggy summer afternoon. 1,000 young men and women from around the United States form up on the hot bricks of Tecumseh Court. Many are in a daze, tired, confused, but at the same time excited to be there. They sit together in a sea of white works, scratching new uniforms that will be with them for the rest of the summer. It's a bit blinding. Suddenly, over the loudspeakers, someone says, The Plebe Regiment, rise. And in a firm, measured voice, the new class repeats the oath of office.
2: Having been appointed a midshipman in the United States Navy, do you solemnly swear that you will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, and that you will well and faithfully discharge the duties of the office upon which you are about to enter? So help you God.
1: This will not be the first time the oath was given in T. Court, and it will not be the last. In fact, those new midshipmen will take the oath and administer that same oath many times over the course of their careers.
2: I'm Lieutenant General John Whistler, United States Marine Corps, retired. On 8 July 1974, I took the oath for the first time, standing in T Court. I don't really remember most of the words or how it went that day. What I really remember about that day was I knew it meant something to take that oath. I knew that it fundamentally changed who I was or what I was supposed to be. But what I was really focused on was how to find my way back to 5-3. That was where I lived as a plebe. And so the importance of what I had just done was sort of overtaken by some of the other events that were going on that day. I look back on that and the fact that it had that that sort of less impact than perhaps it should. But over the course of my career, it became absolutely critical to me what that oath meant. Later on, my son, when he was commissioned in 2005, I wasn't able to administer the oath to him. I wasn't because I was deployed to Iraq at that time, but I was able to have one of my best friends, a fellow Marine Corps general officer, administer him the oath, to commission him as a second lieutenant, to administer that oath that was so critical to him and to others. For myself personally, I've had that oath administered around the world. I got promoted in places like Japan, And twice I had the oath administered to me in Iraq while serving in combat. While serving as an officer around the world, I've had the privilege to administer that oath to other Marines, not only in the Middle East, but to do it around the world, throughout Asia and across the United States. And every time I hear the oath, whether it be the officer or the enlisted oath, the one thing that comes true, that rings true to me, is how important that oath is and to understand what that oath means, why that oath is important. Even when I took my job, my current job, working in the Stockdale Center for Ethical Leadership, it was important, important enough to the institution and to the Navy that I retake the oath, that I take the oath to support and defend the Constitution of the United States. And so this oath is something that is not simply something that It's not words that we say. It's not simply a collection of words. And while on the 8th of July, it may have started as simply a collection of words, it has grown to a crescendo and had much more importance in the course of my life and certainly in my career as a Marine officer.
0: I'm Lieutenant Commander Elizabeth Jarzik, JAG Corps, United States Navy. And I'm currently the course director for NL 400, law for the junior officer here at the United States Naval Academy. So oaths developed across all cultures, really, generally rooted in the legal traditions of that society, whether it's, you know, Bob promises Tom to pay him for his 50 sheep, uh, or whether it's an, uh fealty to a feudal lord or some sort of governorship, or whether it's in the military context, I, I promise to come and serve you, my feudal lord or my general, whatever it may be. There's always some sort of ceremonial aspect to oath-making. In the modern context, right, it's laying your hand on the Bible or the Constitution. That's kind of the ceremonial component of it. And historically speaking, usually there are words accompanying it, now normally spoken because for centuries, right, folks were illiterate. But there is often in historical applications of oaths some sort of a a non-verbal ceremonial aspect of it. Um, oftentimes this involved the the sacrifice of an animal, sort of as testament to one's sincerity or to, to solemnize the oath.
3: I am Dr. Doug Rao. Uh, I am the professor of leadership education in the LEAD division at the United States Naval Academy. I'm a retired Navy captain out of the surface warfare engineering duty officer community. Well, when we talk about the oath as it pertains to our military or persons in our government service, George Washington certainly has and had a primary role in trying to establish what the oath should be. In 1775, he was the commander of the Continental Army. And so you would consider what would be the oath that he would require of those who were going to serve in the army. And then in 1778, he uh, you know, continued to modify that, but, but later on he also became the president of the uh, Constitutional Convention. And so he was very present and very instrumental in generating these oaths that would be, again, for the military or those in government service. But if, But if I could, what I see in General Washington and President Washington is a consistent theme in what the oath should be. And this becomes clear in a letter that he wrote in 1775 when he was first notified that he would be the commander of the Continental Army. It was a position he did not seek. It was a position he took with much caution because he realized how uh, important and how monumental the task was. But he said this, and these are the three points that, that I see in the oaths that General Washington talks about. He says that um, as he considers the position of being commander of the Continental Army, he hopes that God will grant him the acceptance that his job will be attended with some good, but he says, I can answer for but three things. A firm belief in the justice of our cause, close attention to the prosecution of it, and the strictest integrity. And then he says, if those three things cannot supply the places of ability and experience, then the cause will suffer. And as we continue in the conversation of oaths, as they apply to us in the constitution or in law or what we have in the military, we will see that those three themes are there, that we have this firm belief in the justice, the firm belief in our constitution, that we must do pay close attention into the position and the jobs responsibilities we have been given and there is this strong sense of integrity to do what is right without cause of trying to evade or otherwise step aside of the responsibilities that we have so for me in understanding this George Washington plays a huge role in what we have as part of the oaths for government service or the military
0: The oath wasn't originally a loyalty test, or at least it wasn't conceived of in terms of how it had been traditionally used throughout England for a couple centuries before then in more of like a fealty kind of idea, right? My allegiance is to this one particular person and there's going to be consequences if I don't continue to back that person, So military oaths come all the way back from ancient Rome, and it started in kind of that fealty fashion. Hey, I'm going to pledge my loyalty to a particular general for a specific campaign. And then after the campaign was over, the oath no longer applied. And then by about 100 BC, Rome had established a professional military. And in so doing, the oath became effective for the the soldier's entire term of service, however many years that might be. And so this custom kind of grew and expanded. But like I mentioned, England, starting around the 1500s and through the 1700s, had started treating it as more loyalty towards this particular king rather than to the institution or to the military. And so the founding fathers kind of had this in mind when they're coming up with what the military oath should be for service members in America. And as Doc Rao mentioned, General Washington had a pretty big role in that. And in fact, there's actually a court-martial all the way back in 1779, where a gentleman got court-martialed for basically selling like military provisions without authority to make a personal profit, but they tacked on the end of that charge and violating the bond of his oath of office. So in that way, you can see that our oath is is not just a promise to support the Constitution or the ideals of America or the United States, but it's also a code of conduct from its, its very inception. And then we take that oath, of the revolutionary military and we have to incorporate it now that we're a fully fledged nation. The military oath in modern times in really the last century has not seen a lot of movement. It has been relatively static some administrative changes. But around the 1950s and 60s there was a real push towards state federal governments imposing loyalty oaths on government employees. And there was a ton of litigation that came out of that. And the Supreme Court kind of dictated what was and was not going to be allowed in an oath. And anything that tracks like our military oath, hey, an oath to support and defend the Constitution, or generic expressions of loyalty for the United States or a state those have been acceptable. But what hasn't been acceptable is an oath that conditions some sort of particular political belief or allegiance, such as in the 50s and 60s, uh, oaths that you did not support communism or that you rejected communism. And it's actually fairly surprising that that came to be of such importance in the 50s and 60s, because there was some real concerning things happening in Germany during World War II with regard to their oath. So from 1919 to 1934, the oath of a German soldier very much mirrored our own enlistment oath. Hey, I swear loyalty to the Reich's constitution and pledge that I as a courageous soldier always wanna protect the German Reich and its legal institutions and be obedient to the Reich president and to my superiors. Then Hitler takes control and he wants to cement his power and authority, and he changes the oath to read I swear to God this sacred oath that to the leader of the German Reich and people, Adolf Hitler, Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces, I shall render unconditional obedience, and that as a brave soldier, I shall at all times be prepared to give my life for this oath. So, what's concerning about that oath? Is It's a return to those non-democratic kind of ideals that we rejected at our founding, right, and that many modern nations had rejected in the centuries since because we are turning to unconditional obedience, being willing to die for it at all times, acknowledging the supremacy of one particular person. All of that coming together has this very zero exceptions flavor to it. Whereas within our system, service members have the ability and in some cases the obligation to challenge an unlawful order still through the chain of command. But you do have the obligation to stand for our constitutional principles, not blindly follow one person. Whereas Hitler is very much trying to stymie any attempt to do so within the German military, which is really unsurprising when you consider the unlawful and reprehensible things he was ordering his folks to do.
3: In the Constitution, in the portion that talks to the executive branch, there is an oath of office that is required for the President of the United States. And the President has to swear or affirm that they will faithfully execute the office of the President of the United States and will to the best of their ability preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. That is the portion of an oath in the Constitution. There are other parts of the U.S. Code which apply to elected or appointed officials or those who are in the civil service or the uniform services to take an oath. But this is the one that is in the Constitution, very specific towards the president. And again, if I could tie in some of those themes that Washington has talked about, it is to the principle of the Constitution. It is to do his job as best as he possibly can when he says to execute the office of the president and to say that he will do it to the very best of his ability. And I I appreciate that in that he acknowledges his own imperfection, his own faults. And we've read about those things in his speeches that he gave as he was leaving the military and also as he was stepping down as president but to the best of his ability to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution. And again, the Constitution is not the person, it is not the collection of states, but it is the document, is the principles by which the states are united and maintained. You know, the core values for our Navy are honor, courage, and commitment. And and it is that commitment that we are making to defend, protect, preserve the Constitution of the United States. And one of the things that I I do think that is important as the oath has developed over time is when I look back at the oath of office in the military that goes all the way back to 1778, it, it had in that oath, it said that I will, and then it had a line that said, list your job list your position, list your MOS, said, I will do that to the very best of my ability, to the best of my skills, to the best of my understanding. And so it was trying to drive that despite the fact, or regardless of the position that you hold within the civil service or the military, you will have a role. And it's important that you understand your role, how you contribute to the preservation and defense of our Constitution, and that you should do those particular tasks well. And so when I think of the well and faithfully, when we have the oath of office, it's important to pause for a moment and say, what are those requirements and expectations for my job? For the president, he's going to execute those parts of the, the position of being the president of the United States. For others, as I do the oath, I should reflect on What are those duties, responsibilities that I have for the position that I am now going to take?
0: In addition to commitment, finding voice in the I will well and faithfully portion of the oath, we see honor in that it says I will take this obligation freely without any mental reservation or purpose of evasion. That's you. Hey, I'm coming with a clean conscience to do the right thing and serve my country. And then we see courage in, I will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic. I think you have to be pretty heartless, salty, or jaded to not feel something when you say that part of the oath because you're you're promising to serve your country, to potentially die for your country. There's nothing more courageous than that.
3: So we know that the enlisted oath is different than the officer's oath. And this is also uh, part of the the U.S. Code. And this is for the purpose of the good order and discipline within our military. And that we do have expectations for the way that the officers will conduct and what they will do, how they will give orders. And we have for good order and discipline this sense of uh, compliance with orders that are given by enlisted personnel. And the, to me, the enlisted oath is a very important evolution to pass through with our enlisted personnel. The, for an officer's oath of office, it is not necessary to be repeated every time you get a promotion because as long as you're in continued service, it's expected that you are continuing to follow that oath. For enlisted personnel, however, when they take an oath of office it also is really aligning them to a contract that has an end of obligated service. And so every time that they reenlist or they are promoted, they must retake the oath of office. And the significance of the oath of office for an enlisted is, while it still is focused centrally on the defense of the Constitution of the United States, and that they will bear true faith and allegiance to the same, For the sake of good order and discipline, there is also this obligation that they will obey the orders of the chain of command. And in the military, the chain of command, the very top is our commander in chief, who is the president. And so it says, I will obey the orders of the president of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me, according to the regulations and the Uniform Code of Military Justice. So it establishes the framework, the rules by which they should operate. And there are for me, there are two main parts of this oath, and I've been blessed to be able to administer the oath of office many times to sailors who are re-enlisting or enlisting for the very first time. And the, the first is that the purpose of this is to establish the the rules for good order and discipline, and it's in accordance with the Uniform Code of Military Justice, and it establishes the the priority of, of rank and the authority of rank from the commander-in-chief down through the officer rank but the a very important part to me is the person who administers the oath is also taking on an obligation of when they give orders and how they give orders when I would do the oath of the enlistment oath it was a it was also on me to make sure as I go forward, the people that I'm enlisting, they are making a, a vow to me to follow my orders and it's on me to make sure that my orders are legal, they're moral, and that I should be accountable for the orders that I that I give. And so it is it is very important that we have the difference between the two, but it's also very important for those who administer the oath that they recognize that it is also an obligation and commitment for them to
1: lead well. The Oath of Office that pledge that all of us sailors and Marines and many federal serving civilians made to ourselves and to the constitution. Welcome to a series about the oath of office and how it fits with the U S constitution, the bill of rights and the uniform code of military justice.